0: Hey, this is Tolly Wilkes of Captivate Church, and we're so glad you've joined us on our podcast today. This is one way that we can take our message from Baltimore all across the world. We pray that today encourages you, inspires you to become the man or woman that God's designed you to be. You know, I think about what it means for me to follow the way of Jesus on earth and how much of my time as a Christian person, someone who would identify as Uh, a person who follows the way of Jesus, Uh, really the question that everything boils down to for me is what does it really mean for me to follow the way of Jesus on earth? Now, that might be a different question for some of you, but for me, one of the things that I've recognized in my life is I've had this point of awareness of how I understand what it means to follow Jesus matters, For my life after I die, right? Like, I know why it's important to know where you stand with God when you die. Like, there's so much in our culture, in our church, in our life, whether you go to church or not, the conversation about what it means to have good standing with God after you die is very clear, right? Whether you know church or you've been in church or you're new to church or you never go to church, people know the terms heaven and hell, and these things have eternal implications for later on. But I don't know about you, but some of us might be in the similar space that I've been in my life where I'm asking the question, well, does it matter to follow Jesus now? Like, does knowing Jesus on earth actually affect the way that I live, the way that I experience life, the way that I love my family, the way that I love my neighbors, the way that I experience what it means to be a part of the world? Like, is knowing Jesus a factor in my everyday life? And the reason that's an important question is every one of us is here today for a different reason. Some of us have been a part of church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in a church. You know more about the Bible than I could ever even know. Some of us have been a part of serving and giving with our lives for a long time in the church context, and we think about those things and how important it's been in our lives. But some of us who have those stories still may ask the question, I'm not really sure, but what does this really mean for my life? Because even though I've been doing all those things, I still feel dry and tired. I feel like there's a routine connected to me coming to church. I know it's important to be around God and the things talking about God, but what that actually means for my life may not be something that I'm expressively experiencing Now maybe somebody's here today and this is your first time ever being in a church and you're going, man, I know I need hope. I need direction in my life. I know my life could probably be defined by a lot of decisions that I've made, things that I've done that really need to probably turn in a different direction. I need some sort of hope. And you've come today just seeking the desire that this hope would come from this man named Jesus that people have been talking about. And the thing that I would say to Every single person in this room is whether we come from the first scenario where we know all about church, been a part of church, know church culture up and down, or we've never stepped foot inside of a church. The thing that every single one of us needs is exactly the same. It is Jesus. So whether you're dry and tired or you're new to this conversation, whether you know the Bible backwards and forwards or you've never read the Bible one time, the resolution for the things that we long for in our life is rooted and founded in Jesus. There's a quote by a man named Thomas Foxcroft, and he says that Christ is the grand subject which the ministers of the gospel should mainly insist upon in their preaching, So basically what he's saying is, if you're going to open the word with some folks, if Jesus isn't the point, we're missing the point. And all I have to offer today is this reality. Now, the thing I want to say to you before we jump into the scripture is, I heard a quote a long time ago, and I feel like it summarizes exactly what it means for me to have the privilege to open the word with you today. It's that I'm just a beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. There's nothing different about me than you or vice versa. I'm just a beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. The thing that's true about me this morning is I'm hungry and thirsty just like you, but I have a bead on where we can find some food, all right? So that's why we're opening the word together, and I believe that God wants to encourage, whether we're new to church, never been to church, or been in church for a long time, I think he wants to speak to us through what we're going to read today in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke 15, what we see is Jesus having a conversation with some folks who are identified as religious People. Now what this means in this culture at this time is the people who are the administrators, the one who look over the culture and the, the society and they determine who is good and who is wrong, who is bad and who is right. Like these people have governance over this. It's the Pharisees and the scribes is what you see in, in Luke chapter 15 verse 1. It's a group of people who are the religious leaders of the day. Now, the religious leaders of the day are watching this man named Jesus because Jesus has come to preach a message, it says in Matthew chapter 4, which is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has come to earth and he is preaching this message that there is a kingdom that transcends the kingdom that they know to be true on earth at the time. So these religious people are listening with sharp ears because they want to know what is this dude saying that is in opposition to the way that we live right now. Now, in the day, these religious people We're very stuck on the idea of following the rules and the law to determine your righteousness. You were a good person if you, on the outward uh, focus of your life, could live according to the things that you knew to be right and good. And your ability to do that determined your standing in society. So you were either determined good or bad based on what these religious people were seeing. So one of the things that these religious people had a disdain for was the sinner people who were just rolling around the city, doing their own thing, thinking that they could find freedom in their own life. So the religious people would see these people who had reputations The sinners and there's another group in there called the tax collectors. And the reason those people are always lumped together with sinners is tax collectors were known as taking advantage of their own people. They would go and prey on the people and they would seek their own gain out of these transactions. And they would be disrespecting their own brothers and sister so so that they could grow their own financial profile, right? And so the sinners and the tax collectors had these absolute reputations that every person knew. The religious people understood who they were. And what we see in Luke chapter 15 is Jesus in the middle of the city and the sinners and the tax collectors were flocking to Jesus. So right here, the religious people are saying, wait a minute, something's going on here. This dude who has come to preach this message, who's doing all these amazing things, miracles and healing the sick and doing all these incredible works, right? He is now surrounded by the people who are the sinners, the ones with the worst reputations, the ones who have no right to be near anything that is good. And the religious people see Jesus interacting with these people, and it says that he sits with them and he eats with them. And it's like, what in the world are you doing? If you're really this religious man, you're really this leader that you're coming off as, you would not associate with these people. So it says that they were grumbling and Luke 15 verse 1, it says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So what we see here is two distinct groups of people who will be subject to the message that Jesus is about to share with them. You have the religious people, the people who have determined according to their own work, their own understanding, that they are good. And they have the ability to judge other people because of how good they are according to their following the rules. Then there's another group of people who are hearing this message, who are now a part of that sinner and tax collector group. They're all feeling like, who am I to ever have a place at the table of someone who would call themselves savior, they're all listening going, I hope that there is hope for me. I know what kind of life that I've lived. And the fact that there is a guy who is going around talking about hope and salvation, I wanna know if that's true for me. So you got two groups of people. And in Luke 15, you see three stories that are told. Many of you are probably familiar with some of these stories. The first one is a parable about lost sheep, right? Right? The second one is a parable about a lost coin. And then the third one is a parable about a lost son, right? Now, we all have heard the name of this parable many times. It's usually identified as the story of the prodigal son, right? You guys have heard this? Whether you grew up in church or not, The word prodigal is usually associated with a young man or a young woman who has chosen to go their own way. They were a bit um, uh, frivolous with their thinking, right? They've gone their own path. They weren't really conforming to what was true about their household rules or uh, maybe they were anti-conformist in their school or whatever, right? And they've decided to go their own way. Right? And so they're identified as the prodigal child, right? And so we all think of the person who has gone away, the prodigal, as someone who has wandered, right? So we label people prodigal based on their going and leaving and wandering. But do you know that the word prodigal is not defined by leaving and wandering? There's a different definition for this word that's very important for what we're talking about. The word prodigal it by definition is recklessly spendthrift yielding abundantly like this is what we see right here what this means is you are reckless With your spending. A prodigal person is somebody who is reckless with their attitude, reckless with their spending, reckless with what they have. What they have is not of concern to them to hold on to, but they just let go of it. So the reason that the son that we're talking about here is a prodigal is not because they left and wandered away. The reason they're a prodigal is because he doesn't hold on to what he has as something to be valuable, but he just gives it away, gives it away, gives it away. And what we see in the story is that this leads to a detriment. But the thing that I want to bring before you in this time, remember, Jesus is addressing not only the people who are the prodigals, but he's also addressing the religious people who are determining whether or not these people are good or bad. So in the middle of all this, what we need to see and what I would put before you is that the true focus of this story that we call the prodigal son is not actually the prodigal son. I know it's kind of a big thing right there because we've always heard him as the star of the show, right? The prodigal son is the one that we are celebrating. But I'm putting before you that maybe we should call this story something different. Rather than calling it the story of the prodigal son, I'm going to propose that we call it something similar to what they call it in the Middle East when they study this, in the the context where the Bible was actually written, in the culture where this was established. Do you know what they reference this story as? They call it the parable of the running father. Now, this is going to be a little bit different for some of us, but friends, what we're trying to get at, in Luke chapter 15, is that Jesus is aware of who is listening to him. The religious people who think that they can determine what is right and wrong according to their own actions. The people who are hungry and thirsty and hopeful that there is salvation. He's standing in the middle of them. First, he tells them the story of the lost sheep. Then he tells them the story of the lost coin. And now he's about to tell them a story about a running father. You know how I know this is true? That the emphasis shouldn't be rooted solely on the prodigal son. It's because The very first verse associated with this story tells us something different. Right here in Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus starts telling this story, and it says, there was a man who had two sons. Hold on, (laughs) right? This has been called the story of the prodigal son forever. So the prodigal son is usually our focus, but friends, I want to bring before you that there are two sons. And the two sons in this story have a huge bearing on what we're going to understand is unfolding right here. And then it says in Luke 15, 12, the younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far-off country And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This is why we get the prodigal title for this dude. And it says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So I just want to set up the table for you right here. We got this set of two sons. They have a father. The younger of the sons comes to the father and says, listen, I know there's an inheritance coming to me when you die. This is what I want to do. I want to take the inheritance that's coming to me when you die, and I want to grab it right now. I want to go ahead and get that while you're still alive. And what we need to understand is that the implications of this decision of the younger son is so far reaching beyond just this interaction that I don't know if we can fully understand in American culture. The first thing we need to understand is this is a shame and honor culture. So in the Middle East in this time, shame and honor were a huge deal. So the fact that the son says to the dad, I want my inheritance while you're still alive, basically what he's saying to him is, I don't care whether you live or die. I want what you will give me after you die. not interested in a relationship with you. I'm interested in what comes from you as a result of your passing on. So shame and honor, he is shaming his father. The other thing we need to know about this culture is it's a patriarchal culture. So the father or the head of the household is such an important role in this culture. So to ever disrespect that construct, the way that that's built is so shameful. And then the last thing we need to realize is this is a communal culture. So not only is he disrespecting according to the honor of his father not only is he disrespecting the head of the household in his father but he is also disrespecting the whole community because the community wants to fight for what is good and right according to family so the community is going to get word that this young son did this to his dad and the community is going to go he is cut off so even the people who are around are like man who does this kid think he is So then it says that he takes this inheritance, the father graciously gives it to him, and he rolls off to a far off land. Then it says that he spends every bit of this inheritance, and he recklessly lets it go. And as a result of this, a famine hits where he goes, and now he is left with nothing. So he's made this decision to not value relationship with his father, but value what his father could give him. He takes what his father gives him and he wastes it all. Now he finds himself in a desperate, desperate place. In verse 15, it says, so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So this dude is so desperate that he goes and gets a job with people that he doesn't know, and his job is to feed the pigs. Now remember, he's coming from a house where he had everything that he needed. Every bit of his provision was taken care of. He decided that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to go do things his own way. Now he squanders everything, ends up in this job where he's feeding pigs, and the verse goes on to say, as he's feeding the pigs, he's throwing them food, and he's looking at the food that he's feeding the pigs, and he's going, I wish I had the food that these pigs are eating. You talk about a picture of falling all the way from grace. This dude is at the bottom, right? He is absolutely desperate, realizes he's hungry, he's far from home, he's feeding pigs, and he's going, what in the world is happening? Then check this out in verse 17, but when he came to himself. Now right here, I need to pause for a second, because this right here, that line right there is why we usually focus on the prodigal son. Because this line right here is going to be the thing that we usually encourage other people with, we're encouraged by, because it's all about the decision that the son makes. In this moment, he goes, all right, I get it. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. When he came to himself. But friends, I want to take this idea a little bit further that maybe this story is about something else. It says, he came to himself and said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. So right here, he comes to himself. Now this is what's interesting about this he comes to himself idea. Many of us will look at that from a 30,000-foot view and go, all right, well, this was a very spiritual moment, right? Like, this is when God and the Shekinah glory opens up the skies and the man realizes he sinned, right? Like, he knows that this is an absolute disrespect to the honor, but I'm not exactly sure that that's what happens here. What I think happens here is a man who is hungry that realizes what he had before is now not with him. And he goes, hey, this is dumb, man. Like, this is crazy. My father's servants are getting down better than me. And I'm over here starving. I'm coming up with a plan. How many of us have ever come up with a plan, right? Like, we're going to dig ourselves out of this situation. So it says that the son comes up with a plan. And his plan has three points. Everybody say three. (laughs) This is really important. You need to know that there are three. Everybody say three. Come on. The three right here is so important for us to remember. I know that's random, but you need to lock in on three. Because leaving here, all I need you to remember is that his plan had three points, okay? His first point in his plan was, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Point number one. Point number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, right? That's the second thing, I'm gonna make sure because number one, he knows that he messed up. You know you done messed up. (laughs) The second part, he also knows that culturally, there is no way that he can positionally get back in the house to be a son because remember, the shame and honor culture of what he has done has now cut him off from the opportunity to be a part of this family. So he's not trying to be falsely humble, I'm no longer worthy to be called. No, he's acknowledging what is actually true according to the law. He's saying, hey, uh, let me go ahead and call it what it is. I'm no longer to be worthy to call, be called your son. Like, let me say it because I already know this is true. But then his resolution is point number three. So in light of the other two things, his resolution his fix is treat me like one of your hired servants this is what I need you to know the plan the son has come up with is to work to earn the love of the father to work to earn the love of the father that's point number three so now he comes up with the plan He's starting to feel confident about this plan. You know, we all do this. We start talking. ourselves, Yeah, yeah, I think that'll work right there, right? And so now he gets himself up, and then in verse 20, it says, He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. You know, often I get asked, like, what's your favorite Bible verse? I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, this is the one. And the reason that this is the one is it shows us so clearly the intention of God for humanity and his love for us right here. So the son comes up with a plan. It says that he arose and he returned to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father sees his son and runs to him. Now, the first thing we need to take note of right here is that the father sees him from a long way off. Now, why is this an important factor? Did the father have any reason to think that his son was coming back? No. His son shamed him, disrespected him before the family and the whole community took the money and said, I'm out of here. I know what I'm doing. The father has no reason to believe the son is coming back, but yet the father is still on the porch looking for his son, and so he can see him when he's far off. Unless the father's looking for him, he wouldn't have seen him. So the love of the father is already on display for a son who does not deserve it. Then it says that the father hikes up his cloak and starts running to his son. Now, why is this important? In the culture, what we realize is the father running through the city right here is so demeaning to him. He's an important man who has an important position, who has hired servants, who has sons, who has money, who has prominence, and yet. In all of his compassion for his son, he runs to his son. Now, everybody who's watching the father would be going, wait a minute, what is this fool doing? He was shamed in front of everyone, and now he runs to this son? That is so undignified. That is so beneath him. Then it says that when he gets to the son, he embraces him and he kisses him. Now, the thing about this kisses him, the Greek word is katephilson. And this word kiss right here is to lavish love over and over and over. You ever watch those cartoons? And in the cartoons, there's like the little cartoon cat, right? And it's like kissing, it's like, and it's like the spit is flying everywhere. And the kisses every, it's just like too much, right? This is what we're talking about. A son who deserves no love is now being embraced and kissed with love that goes way beyond what you could ever expect. So this is actually going down in the middle of all these people watching. But remember, the son has a plan, right? So let's make sure that we remember this. So then in verse 21, after the father already displayed all of this love, it says that the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, this is really important. We see right here, just like we would do, we have our minds fixed on what the plan is. doesn't matter what's already transpired. He's probably been walking this whole time just going, I sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I'm no longer to worry whether you're going to treat me as one of your highest. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned. He's got it going, right? He knows what he needs to say. He's going through it. So he's getting kissed, and he's getting love. He pushes back, and he goes, wait, 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 okay, I got a speech to make. Point number one. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Point number two, how many were there? Point number one, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Point number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But, right here we see something so beautiful. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. All right, now, I I need you to see something. It's going to take about five more minutes. I know we're over our time right now, but I need you to understand what's going down. How many points were in this plan? How many points did he get out in the speech? (laughs) Right before he takes the deep breath to say, let me work to earn your love, let me work to earn your love. Right when he takes a deep breath, he says, (gasps) and his father says, quick, bring me the best robe. Now whose robe do you think is the best robe in the house? The father's. So check this out. (laughs) The father gets his servants to bring his robe. So when the father wraps his robe around the son, The people who are ready in the community to condemn him, to cast him out, say he has no position here. They no longer see the son in the sin he just lived in. They see him wrapped in the robe of the father. So now the robe of the father is the identification point of this son who has squandered the money, lived recklessly, disrespected the village, his family. Every bit of what's going on here is so shameful, and yet the father in his grace says, before you try to say you're going to work to earn my love, let me put my robe around you, because when they look at you, they will no longer see you in your sin. They will see you as my son. Number two, it says, put a ring on his finger. If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, right? If you don't know what the song is, don't even worry about it. I'm just, I got a long way to go. You know what I'm talking about? He says put a ring on his finger. Now, why is this significant? Well, in the day, they probably would have used a ring like what they're talking about that was a signet ring. And that signet ring would have probably had some sort of identifiable crest or notable thing about the family that would have said he's with us. So if you're going about and you're doing your transaction in the village, whatever, they don't have cash on hand, they're probably showing the ring like this is for my father's house. You know what he's saying with this? Put a ring on his finger. Even though he squandered the money, he's back in the inheritance again. So not only is he simply welcomed back as a son, he has full rights as a son again. Even though he has sinned, he now has every right of a son. And the last piece of this where it says that They need to put some shoes on them. I always read that, and I thought it was an afterthought. But in my research, I started to realize that slaves were barefoot. Sons wore shoes. So what he is trying to show the culture, what he's trying to show everybody who's looking, what he is representing in his own love for the son is he has been fully restored, not because he came to himself. Not because of his own decision. Not because he's so righteous in returning. It's because my grace lavishes it on him. I'm not judging him according to his past. I am judging him now according to the identification of the robe around him. The righteousness of God, it says in the Bible, is clothed upon us. In Galatians, it says that when we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. It says in Isaiah 55 that the robe of righteousness is draped upon us. When God looks at us, he no longer sees us in our sin. He sees Jesus. And so friends, when he's telling this story to this group of people, there are religious people on one side who are listening. There are people who are just like the prodigal son on the other side. And at the center of all of it, what he's saying is, it's not about your work. It's not about what you've done. It's not about your past. It's not about how righteous you're living. It's all about the grace of the Father. I am the one that gives you the righteousness. And obviously he's talking about himself. So what Jesus wants these people to know and understand is that they will never work to earn their righteousness, and they will never be able in their own understanding to judge and determine who is right and wrong. At the same time, the people who are hopeless and feel like there's nothing good that could ever come from my life, Jesus is saying, it's not about what you've done. If you allow me to wrap my robe around you, my work is what gives you a new identity. So, friends, whether you're far away from Jesus or you are all the way rooted in the church, if we need hope, that hope is found at the foot of the cross. Now, remember, there's another brother, and this other brother's watching this whole thing unfold. And just really quickly, you, is it all right if I just, okay, I just don't want to keep you too long. There's this other brother, and he's watching what's unfolding. This other brother is witnessing this whole scene. And then he goes off and he starts working. And then it says that this older brother in verse 25 was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. So the older brother now the one who's the goody two-shoes, right? The one who would never do anything to disrespect his father. He starts walking to the house and he starts hearing, and he's like, hey, calls one of the servants, come here, man, what's going down in the house? And the servant's like, hey, it's amazing. Your father, he's welcomed back your brother. Your brother came back. Isn't that crazy? And the older brother's going, oh, right? Wait, hold on. Wait a minute. So he is not going in the party." He is the faithful older brother who's been here. I never would have done anything like that. And he's not going in the party. The father recognizes that his son, whom he loves, is not in the party. So look what happens. In verse 28. He was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, begged him. But his, he answered his father, look. Wait, hold on, like real quick. <laughs> How many of y'all... If you ever stood in front of your father and said, look, (laughs) that would go well for you. (laughs) That's a different family than I came from. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not my brother, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he goes, man, I've been working. I've been here the whole time. I would have never broken the rules. Now all of a sudden you're going to party because this dude comes back? Are you kidding me? You never even gave me a party, a young goat. Forget a fattened calf. You never even gave me a dusty old goat for me to party with. Now you're going to celebrate this dude? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. This is what I need you to know. Do you remember how this father lost all dignity for the sake of his younger son? He lost all dignity. It was shameful what he did to run through the city and be disrespected in his own actions this way for the sake of the son. Well, once again, we have a father who is looking at his son and this older brother disrespects his father by saying, look, and what does the father do? He lowers his dignity again because he didn't need to respond to him with such grace. The the older brother goes, look, I've been working for you. Why wouldn't you bless me? And yet we see the father lower his dignity. He says, I love you. I just want you to come in the house. All I care about is that you're in the house. You have everything that I have to offer already. Why are you mad that I'm giving it to someone else as well? You will never lack. You will never want. Why would you look at someone else and judge where you are according to what they are getting and experiencing? Know that you are my son. And you know what the older brother does? Neither do I because the story ends right there. (laughs) Let's pray. No, I'm just (laughs) playing. Look. This is really important. This is why I'm sorry I took the audacity to go a couple minutes over our time. But this is why it's so important, friends. There is no resolution to this story that is visible to us because he was talking to a group of people who he wanted to know how they were gonna respond. He didn't tell them what the older brother did because he wanted to see what the older brother was gonna do. (laughs) And some of us are the older brother. Some of us in here right now are the older brother. Maybe we can look at this person who is the prodigal, who's been rescued, and we go, yeah, they need Jesus. But what about us? who though we on the outside look like we got it all together? What about us who've been working in the house faithfully for God, but yet bitter the whole time? What about us who have been showing up to church and going through the motions, but really don't know if we actually believe any of the things that we're hearing? What about us who come with this identification in in, in our Christness, and our Christianity, but yet we are so afraid to ever let anyone know about it? What about us who would take the benefits of being a part of the house, but yet never express what it means? means to be in love with the father what are we going to do and yet he is asking the question then just like he is now friends i look at this i see this story and it's a great gift to us because it brings every single person in this church to the same foot of the same cross whether you're far off you can know that through the grace of god in the work of Jesus, there is a welcoming home. You can know that if you've been dry and judgy and tired and frustrated in your church attendance, there is a grace from God that welcomes you home. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to hold on to, but he emptied himself out made himself of no reputation, took on the form of human flesh, suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what that is? He lost all of his dignity for the sake of those that he would save. When Jesus was talking about this story, he was talking about himself. What does this look like for us today? Do we want to leave here knowing that we are squandering, living recklessly, and yet we don't know if we'll be welcomed back home so we'll never come to ourselves and return to see if the Father's grace will welcome us? Or will we continue like the older brother, doing all our work for God but never actually wanting to be with the God we are working for? Or will we both come to the foot of the cross and find rest? Thank you.